Let me invite you to find a Bible and to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking, uh, our primary passage tonight will be verses 13 to 22 of this chapter as the Apostle Paul is laying out what are some marks or components of the true church of God. He is doing so into the pretty difficult context of the Jew-Gentile relationship in the church as Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians are being converted and are brought into faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that then they are finding difficulty in living together in a local gathered body called the church. And it's into that context that Paul is going to, in large part, there's a great deal in these verses I will not deal with tonight, but he is in large part going to lay out what are some of the marks of the true church. And uh, it's instructive for us then, I think, to pay attention to these Verses, and I think we will be greatly helped by them if we will give them our attention. Frankly, we live in a time where there is both confusion and frustration among many regarding the church. We're often frustrated by what the church is, and that frustration takes on many forms. Everything from uh, uh, an overarching ambivalence or indifference, where we just couldn't really care less, Uh, to anger and bitterness at some painful experience that we have maybe endured through the church or some failing of the church or perhaps a, a minister held in high esteem and regard that let us down. And so we are often frustrated, even as evangelical Christians, at what the church is and as in many places become. But add to that that we are also often confused about what the church ought to be. One of our frustrations is that the church is not what we want it to be. The problem is that we are often very confused about what that is, what the Bible lays out for the church to be. And this frustration and confusion is not only in the world, those outside of the church, or only in the church. It may take on many different forms. But the reality is that both in the world and in the church, there is frustration and confusion that abounds. And so the goal of My teaching tonight will be to paint with some very broad uh, brushstrokes, if you will. I I have a feeling this will be the broadest and most general of the sessions that will come to us this weekend, and that many of the sermons and teaching lessons that will come after this one will simply be unpacking and unfolding in a deeper way from God's Word some of the things and some of the components and the aspects of the church that I try to draw out for us from Paul's writings here in Ephesians chapter 2. So my goal is simply to answer the question of what the church is. We have to know where to go to get that answer. When we think about what we long for the church to be, we have to be careful that our longings are in accord with what God commands the church to be. We have to know where to seek the answers to the question, what the church is, what the church does, and how the church relates to one another and to the world. Um, For many Christians, uh, for those of us here tonight, for those of us not here tonight, for those of us in uh, Christians in places all around the world, if we want to know what we believe about the church, if we believe in the church, if we love the church, what we think about the church, all we have to do is, to some degree, take an inventory of our life in and participation with the church. Do we love it? Do we participate in it? Do we long to gather alongside the church, and the people that make up the church, all of them? Do we seek to be poured out as an offering for the church? Do we seek to serve 
the members of the body in the church? Do we long to gather for corporate worship and for ordinances and for fellowship and for prayer and for singing with the church? What sort of perspective do we have about these things? Is the church and its gatherings optional or essential? Is the fellowship we find there a necessary part of the Christian life? Is it an ordained means of God's grace for Christians? Or are we able to set it aside if we so please? The Apostles' Creed, an ancient uh, confessional proclamation of the Christian church, it begins with this statement, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And though that may seem confusing, he's not... Uh, the, the confession, the creed there is not identifying the Roman Catholic Church, but Catholic with a little c, the universal church, all Christians in all places, united in the gospel, living unto holiness before God. But it's interesting there that the creed begins with, I believe in the church. It goes on to call this church the communion of the saints. And it defines that as those all who are in Christ, in union with Christ. I wonder, can we make that confession together tonight? Do we really believe in the church? Matthew Henry once famously said, when we take God for our God, we take his people for our people. Let that sink in for just a minute. You realize there is no category in the Bible. I submit that to you tonight. No category in the Bible of a Christian completely separated from the local gathering of Christians. There is no such thing in the Bible as a, a lone ranger Christian who lives on his little Christian island apart from the ministries of the local church, apart from the ordained preaching and teaching and fellowshipping and singing and praying together of the body of Christ in the gatherings known as the local church. The scripture makes this clear, that the church then is the means or the vehicle that God has ordained for the discipleship of his people and his witness to the world. So that it's through the church that we grow in, as the scriptures tell us, grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through the church that we display the redeeming power of the gospel to the world around us. And we are able to do these things in and through the church by loving and supporting and sharpening and remaining faithful to one another. Now, yeah, that doesn't, I'm not advocating that God doesn't use other means to do some of those things in our lives. He most certainly does. But it is to advocate that as the scriptures declare, the ordinary means by which these things come to, to, to pass in the Christian life with all of its ebb and flow, with all of its up and down, with all of the difficulty in God's providence we may face in the Christian life, the ordinary means by which these things are to be accomplished is through the church. And God has established the church for this purpose so that when the church looks like the church and when the church gathers to be the church and when the church is the church reflecting the beauty and the power and the glory of God to the world, that it is, as Ephesians 3, below this passage in verse 10 will tell us, that God's manifold wisdom in saving us is made known through the church. Think about that. I would argue then, before we move to the text that is before us tonight, one more introductory comment, and that is that for Christians, we must begin with an understanding that the church is essential for and central to our Christian faith and life together. And sadly, so many Christians today 
Even so many evangelicals today, they have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude when it comes to the church. For so many professing Christians, meaningful church membership means almost nothing, if anything at all. Corporate worship and observance of church ordinances is a matter of convenience, not conviction. Church discipline and accountability are to be avoided because of cultural stigmas associated with them. And discipleship in the church and missions through the church are things better accomplished in most minds of Christians today by parachurch organizations. The reality is that's simply where we are. And so I think there needs to be this conference. There needs to be many conferences like this in many churches for, for Christians all around the world where there is a reorienting of our understanding of what the church is so that we can neither be confused about what God has called us to be and frustrated because we are not being it. Let us submit to the Word of God, the revealed will of God for His people, the directive for life and faith together that He's given us, and then let us gather rather together around the truths to be the church. Let's look together then at Ephesians chapter 2 and to this Jew-Gentile uh, difficulty, this, this difficult context that Paul writes, and we're going to begin reading, kind of jumping in right in the middle of it, but for the sake of time in verse 13. Before we read it together, let's pray. God in heaven, um, as has already been asked, we profess our desperate need for your help now. As we come to your word, God, I need your help in teaching it. God, give me energy and God, give me insight, give me strength to, to say what you've said. God, help me in teaching that I would be free from error. God, we need you to help us in listening. We need you to help us in understanding, in submitting to the truth of your word and applying it to our lives. So God, shine a bright light now upon the darkness of our hearts that the word of God would pierce us and transform us into the image of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, then, beginning in verse 13. Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I would like to begin tonight with the definition that Greg Allison, Dr. Allison, offers in his fairly recent work on the doctrine of the church. It's entitled uh, Sojourners and Strangers, I believe. But this is what he says. It's somewhat lengthy, but I think it's appropriate and instructive for us. And I'll try to show you the seven characteristics of the church he pulls out. But listen to what he says. Very simply, the church is the people of God. 
And these are the people who have been saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and have been incorporated into his body through baptism with the Holy Spirit. It consists of two interrelated elements. The universal church is the fellowship of all Christians that extends from the day of Pentecost until the second coming, incorporating both the deceased believers who are presently in heaven and the living believers from all over the world. This universal church becomes manifested in local churches characterized by being doxological, logocentric, pneumodynamic, covenantal, confessional, missional, and spatio-temporal or eschatological. Local churches are led by pastors, also called elders, and served by deacons. They possess and pursue purity and unity, exercise church discipline, develop strong connections with other churches, and celebrate the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Equipped by the Holy Spirit with spiritual gifts for ministry, these communities regularly gather for worship to the triune God. They proclaim His Word, engage non-Christians with the gospel disciple their members, care for people through prayer and giving, and stand both for and against the world. Rather long, but that's a really clear and carefully written definition of what the church is. And in it, he identifies those seven big words that you heard of what the church is to be, according to Scripture. He says doxological. That is that it is oriented, it's a people of God oriented to the glory of God. That it is logocentric, that it is centered around both the incarnate Word of God, Jesus Christ, and the revealed Word of God, the Holy Scriptures. He said that it's pneumodynamic, that, it, that is, that it is created, gathered, and gifted by the Holy Spirit of God who empowers it. He said that it's covenantal, that it is a new covenant relationship to God that brings it about, and through this covenantal relationship, they are then bound together with one another in covenant. He said that it's confessional. That is, that we are united by and with our and through our personal, individual professions of faith in Christ. We confess, we confess faith in Christ together. We share a common confession to the doctrines of Scripture and to the historic Christian faith of Jesus Christ alone. That it is missional. That is, that it is divinely called by God to proclaim the gospel and advance the kingdom of God in the world. And then spatio-temporal or eschatological. That's just a fancy way of him saying that it is a here and now reality, an assembled reality today in time and space, and it is so while possessing a certain hope and clear destiny for that which is to come. So we're here now, gathered now, but we are so gathered with a hope for our destiny in the future with what God would make of us. Notice in these definitions, specifically where he begins, that the church is the people of God. We might say there are multiple churches gathered together in this place tonight. There are representatives from those churches. Friends, the church is gathered. So that the church is the people of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, saved by the grace of God through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's only Son. It's not the building. It's not bricks. It's not a location. It's not a specific church or denomination or affiliation. The church of God is the people of God. And to those people about what they should be, Paul has a great deal to say in the verses before us in Ephesians 2. I've identified four components or aspects of the church or dimensions to the church that are identified by Paul here in these verses. We're going to speak first about the salvific or the redemptive dimension of the church. Secondly, we're going to talk about the corporate dimension of the church. 
Thirdly, we're going to talk about the historical dimension or reality of the church. And then finally, we're going to talk about the dimension of holiness that is central to the life of the church. But let's begin with perhaps the most important and primary of those components when we think about what is the church. The most basic answer is that the church is the people that God has redeemed. So the church is made up of people. It is often said the church is made up of sinners. That is true, but it's not all sinners. The church is made up of a certain subset of sinners. We are those sinners who through repentance and faith in Christ have been redeemed. We have been saved by God's grace and we have been made new by the power of the Spirit at work within us. To put it another way, the church is because God does. More specifically, the church is a reality because of what God does and has done through salvation, through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first question that we have to address when we think about the nature of the church, especially with so much of the confusion that abounds in so many corners, both of Christianity and in the world, is, is there a central hub around which the church necessarily gathers? Because when we look around at the, the myriad of churches that are claiming to be churches today, you can find all kinds of churches that gather around all sorts of things. The sad reality is that many, many, many churches today gather around what are human, temporal, practical, circumstantial realities. So whether you're the biker church, or whether you're the cool, new, trendy rock concert church, or whether you're the traditional music church, or whether you're the church for homeschoolers, or the church for non-homeschoolers, or whether you're the church for tall people, or however ridiculous, whatever circumstantial reality you can come up with, there's a church for that. Is that wise? Is that helpful? Is that biblical? And the answer that Paul gives us is clearly no. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, the primary reality by which and around which these people place together Jews and Gentiles in this body known as the church, the primary reality is that they are there because of what Christ is in and to them. Notice the language right off the bat. Verse 13, that they are now in Christ Jesus, those who once were far off. Back, if you go back to verses 10, 11, and 12, you'll see that they once were strangers and aliens, that is, in their relationship to God, that now by salvation have been brought near. Those who were far off have been brought near. Notice this is by His blood, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the language of reconciliation, the language of salvation, the language of adoption and acceptance and newness and righteousness and all of those things. It is the language of what God has made us through the gospel. And he begins there because that is the thing that unites us. That is the hub around which everything in the church is to, is to circle and is to rotate. Notice verse 16, that the goal is that this people would be reconciled. That he has brought us both, what? To be reconciled to God. And how does this to happen? It is through the cross. Notice verse 18, that it through Christ, we now both have access to the Father. 
You see, you see the, the most important truth, the most important reality for all of our difference, generational differences and racial differences and socioeconomic differences and cultural differences and language differences and all of the differences that make us weird and unique and make this thing called the church a, a, a huge mess. Y'all are messy. And it's complicated. And it's complicated at Bellevue. And it's complicated and messy at Redeemer. Why? Because we're all so different. So what are we doing? We've been made one in Christ. Because we each have the Holy Spirit of God. Do you know that the most different person from you inside the church is more alike you than the most alike person to you outside of the church? Do you know that? Do you believe that? Because you both possess the Holy Spirit of God. You've both been made new. You've both been redeemed. <laughs> and we can't sit on the same pew with people that we don't like. And we can't sit in offices and have conversations with people in the church. The redeemed of God. We gather around the central abiding reality that we have been given access to God together by being saved in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, this is the unity language of the the hope of the church, the unity of the gospel that it's supposed to bring to us. All of this language about one body and one spirit, but look at what he says, the qualifying mark here. Just as you were called to one hope. What, why are we together? It's because of a common faith and a hope that flows from it. It's because of a common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and a common salvation so that we are all under the lordship of one with one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, who is over all of us and in all of us and through all of us. You, you see, the, the mark of the church, the, the, the glue for the church, the most important thing for the church to understand is that you are only the church because and in so much as God has saved you. Now this has tremendous implications for our life together our relationship with one another, and our relationship to other churches. We must reflect on truths like Titus 2, verse 14, where we are told that Christ gave himself in order to redeem and purify a people for himself. Notice it's not some people. It's not nebulous. It's not that Christ came and died and gave of himself just to, to redeem a few, that there might be some stragglers out there. But but to come and redeem a special people, a group of people that he would place together and then bring both to himself and through him to God. A people for his own possession, it says in Titus chapter 2. What does this mean, this first point of the mark of the church? What does it mean for us in the church that we gather around the truth, the reality that God has saved us? Well, first of all, it means that our church relationships are relationships which are bound up in the covenant relationship we have with God through Jesus Christ. And we need to understand that. That unless that is the thing that binds us together, nothing else will cause that relationship to last. Because whatever circumstances, whatever likenesses, whatever similarities, whatever agreements we may have, they can all be shipwrecked in a moment. The only abiding truth that is in no danger of being shipwrecked is the reality that I am with you and you are with me because we are in Christ. 
Because we are now bound up together, whether we like it or not, in a covenantal relationship with God because of what God has done for us. That means that we love others in the church, that we serve others in the church, that we seek the good of others in the church, and we commit ourselves to worship and to serve together through the church, not because the people in the church are like us, not because we get along so well, not because we share interests or don't, or even because we agree on everything or surely do not, but because we are both in Christ. So the church is gathered not around temporal, human, circumstantial, experiential truths, but the spiritual truth of salvation. We aren't called to be the CrossFit church. We're called to be the Jesus church. And he should be central to our life together in that body. Second of all, Paul makes clear here not only the salvific aspect or dimension of the church, but the corporate dimension of the church. This is perhaps the main point of this section taken all together given the Jew-Gentile context, and that is the reality, simply put, that God is not only interested in saving individuals unto himself, that's true enough, but in doing that, God is necessarily saving individuals and placing them in relationship with one another. So that there is not only an individual dynamic and dimension to God's purposes and salvation, But the full redemptive purposes of God are worked out through corporate community and fellowship. And that truth is made abundantly clear in these verses. That God intends not only to bring individuals into a relationship with himself, but to bring them into a relationship with one another. And that was a much bigger deal, no matter what you may think, in this day, into the context that Paul's writing, than it is for us. The Jews and Gentiles hated one another, and there was all sorts of baggage and history and background and practice and racism and all sorts of horrendous, sinful, self-centered things that separated them. Not only that, there was the, the law of God and the ceremonial practices that bound up the Jewish tradition that it was so hard for them to get away from. There were so many things that, that, that had to be overcome. But even with all the baggage and all the difference between them and all the hatred between them, Paul clearly lays out here that it is the design of God that they be brought in together. Look at verse 14. He says, for he himself is our peace. But look at what he's done. In saving us and becoming our peace and bringing us near to God, he has made us both one. So that that yes, we're one with God, And that through Christ, the hostility that exists between God and sinners is obliterated so that as Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. But do you see also that it is speaking about these two different peoples, these Jewish Christians and these Gentile Christians. And what he is saying to them is, through the gospel, we have been made one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances. Why? That he might create in himself one new man. Not a Jewish church and a Gentile church. Not a biker church and a CrossFit church. That isn't the church. And I'm not trying to throw too big a stone. That's just not what the Bible calls the church to be. But the goal in salvation is that there would be one man from among the Jews and the nations. And they would be brought together in salvation with one another and then up to heaven to be delivered to God their Father. 
so that in place of the one in place of the two men there now is one notice verse 16 that he might reconcile us both to God and how is that in one body not in separate bodies See, it's what, it's, it, it, it would have been one thing for the Jews to have been able to understand and say that, yeah, God saved Gentiles too. It's another thing altogether for them to say, and we want them here because they're just like us. <laughs> yeah, God saves them too. God's not, God's not above the homeless community. God's not above the black community. God's not above the white community. God's not above the biker community. It's another thing altogether to say, and he makes them our community. That was a significant reality, that he might reconcile them both to God. And he came and preached peace, it says in verse 19, to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. What? The message of peace. Peace with God and peace with one another to those way off in the four corners of the earth and to those right here near to him in Jerusalem. For through him we both have access. Isn't that amazing? Consider the familial language that is being articulated here. That now together in verses 18 and 19, having both been made one, both brought together in this one body, what is that body? It's now the family of God. These are now together equal children of God, equally adopted. And though that language is not explicitly used, it is absolutely in the mind of the author here. They, he talks about having a common access and an equal standing as equal children. You know, the, the, the analogy is often used that not just anybody can stroll into the office of the president. I'm sure our, I know that our current president doesn't have any young children, but, but if I was the president, maybe that'd be a good idea. I'm not sure. But I have four small children. And though not just anybody can can just stroll in and have access to the office of the president. You know who never has to ask? His kids. And, and he's speaking here about how through Christ and through salvation, these so different peoples are brought together in one body and then equally acceptable before God. Both brought into the family. Look at what he says in 19. So that you are then no longer strangers and aliens, that's an interesting verse on two fronts. Number one, because in 11 to 12, they are called strangers and aliens insofar as they are separated from God. Okay, so, so they're sojourners and strangers and aliens to the grace of God. What he's saying is now they've been brought near and adopted and brought into the family together, so they're equal and they're not strangers and they're not aliens. However, in 1 Peter 2, we're going to be exhorted as strangers and sojourners upon the earth. So the place that was once our home, where we were in it strangers to God, is no longer our home. And the place where we were once strangers, we are now family. And the place where we were once at home, we have become strangers, if that makes any sense at all. It's an interesting play. First Peter 2, you can go and find that in your own time. The point that he's making is that we are given a new identity. Notice some of the other language here. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. He could have just said citizens, but you're brothers. You're now fellow citizens with the saints, all of them, not with the Jewish Christians, not with the Gentile Christians, but with all the saints of God and members of his household. It's wonderful language. It's wonderful to see that we are, that we are bound up together into this kingdom. 
Notice some of the language in 21 and 22. That there's one structure. You see it there. That we are built up into the whole structure. Joined together. A structure that grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also we are being built into a dwelling place for God. See, it's, it's not a bifurcated disjointed group of individual Christians. That's not what it is. That there is in salvation an individual aspect where God saves you and praise God for that truth. But in saving you and reconciling you to himself, there is no way around the truth that you have necessarily been incorporated through reconciliation with all of the saints of God. And that universal church, as Greg Allison's definition so clearly articulates, manifests itself in local gathered congregations where they are not gathering around any other truth and likeness and circumstance than their shared faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So some application. We have to move to the last two points more briefly. But before we do that, some points of application. As I've already said, Lone Ranger Christians, then, are completely foreign to the Scriptures. In fact, John goes so far as to say that it is by our sincere love and care of one another that the world will know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. And I submit that to you for your own reflection and careful consideration tonight. Can the world look at the way you love the church and that's, I'm not changing the words. The people of God are the church, and they gather in the church. I've made that argument here tonight. Does the world see how much you love and care for and defer to the church so that they're convinced that you must be of Jesus? Can't always be said in my life. Secondly, this means that the church is essential for the Christian life. That it is central to God's plan of salvation for you, not only to be an individual Christian, but to be a community Christian. Do you see that? That he saves you to bring, him to, to bring you to himself, and he saves you to bind you with other Christian and covenant communities. That means, if that is true, and Paul says that it is, that it is not okay for Christians to have a take-it-or-leave-it mentality toward the church. One of the, the grossest realities in my experience as a pastor over the last nearly couple of decades is the revolving door in the back of our churches. Because Christians can just take it or leave it. We approach the church with a consumeristic mentality. It's like a buffet. We shop for churches like we shop for restaurants. Where we go to the one that suits us best, that meets our taste, that scratches our itch, and we stay there until it's not being scratched any longer. Or until it doesn't go our way, until it doesn't meet our standard, until something isn't right, till we lose a battle or a fight, and then we bolt. That's not the picture that Paul is painting in Ephesians chapter 2 of the way the church is to exist together. We can't just take it or leave it. We can't take or leave corporate worship, friends. How many Christians in the church today long for less worship? So then most churches have done away with Sunday evening services. They've done away with Sunday school certain parts of the year. They've done away with corporate worship gatherings. They've traded them for small group discipleship meetings and so forth. 
Why is it that the very thing we are commanded in the New Testament to do, what does it say about the Lord's Day in the New Testament? The imperative command is do not forsake the assembling together of the body. Hebrews chapter, what, 11, 13? I think it's chapter 10 or 11. Do not forsake the assembling together of the body of Christ. And then we're encouraged to do it all the more as the day of Christ approaches. Not less and less. Cannot approach the church with a take-it-or-leave-it mentality. It's essential. Secondly, it also means that we cannot be spectators only in the church. Be not only hearers of the Word of God, but doers. We must come, and we must engage, and we must participate, and we must seek to be used up for the benefit of the body. We must seek to be poured out, like Paul says, to run the race to exhaustion in order that the Christians around us would benefit. Has anybody grown in their faith because of your effort? This week, this month, this year? How are you being exhausted in accord with the gifts and opportunities that God gives you, in accord with whatever God gives you, so that other Christians can look more like Christ, can be secure in Him, can be prayed for and supported and led to the throne of grace? It's the goal of the church. It means our our participation in the church, thirdly, goes beyond then when it is convenient when it is helpful, when it is being done my way, when I don't really like the teacher, when the music could be better. The list is long, and I have a lot more here, but for sake of time, I'll leave that. This means that the purpose of God and the glory of God and the witness of His kingdom depend upon the church. Now, now don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God needs us. God doesn't need any of us. God can see to it that his glory is manifest. But in his wisdom, Ephesians 3.10, he has ordained that that wisdom be made known through the church so that the name and the fame and the glory of God is at stake and the building of his kingdom is at stake in the church. So we should love it and we should come together in it. Now, I'm going to have to skip some of this, but... uh, I want you to see something of the historical dimension of the church. There is a feeling now in so many church circles that if the church is uh, waning and dying and struggling, that the church needs to be reinvented, that the church needs to be rebranded, that the church needs to be something new. And I love what Paul says here, though it is very brief, about the historical nature of the church. The church is no new invention, and the message of the church is no new message. The scripture make clear that the goal of the church is not imagination or reinvention or cultural accommodation. We are a particular people built by God through salvation, as we have already seen. And in verses 19 and 20, we see that God has built this particular people on a particular foundation. What was that foundation? So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens, together with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Who are the apostles and the prophets? They are those men God chose and ordained to build His church upon. It was through their teaching, through their instruction and correction and preaching and ministry, that God established the New Testament church as we know it. The apostles and prophets have given way to preachers and teachers. But the New Testament makes clear, we as a church either bind ourselves to the teaching of the apostles, 
or we divorce ourselves from the Christian tradition altogether. Those are the only options. If you go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, immediately after the day of Pentecost, with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon thousands, who by conversion are being added to the number of the saints inside the body, what does it tell us they did? And order matters here. It says that they committed or devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And like unto that, the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The church was seen there submitting themselves to and desiring to guard and propagate their common faith founded upon the truth that the apostles preached. This was the common faith that became the truth once for all delivered to the saints for which we are called to contend in Jude 3. In 1 Timothy 3.15, you'll notice that the church is called to be, it is described as, it is intended to be known as a pillar and buttress of the truth. What truth? The truth that's been handed to us. The truth that has been given to us in God's sovereignty and providence and care through the work of the apostles. Notice that this truth has a cornerstone. That if the apostles and the prophets and the ministry that God gave unto them and the message that he gave unto them, it is the message of the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. The one without whom the church would crumble. He says that here. By way of application, what does that mean? Well, poignantly, it means we don't need a new brand. You don't need a better sign or logo. It's not about lights and cooler names and more extensive programs and smoke machines. I'm not, I'm not castigating all of those things necessarily. That's not to say that some of those things are not in need of being looked at and considered, etc. But it is to say that the church does not need to become something new. We need to commit anew to something old. The church does not need to be something new. It needs to commit anew to something old. We need to faithfully believe and live out the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is our common faith and hope, once, once for all delivered to the saints. We need to bind ourselves to the teaching of the apostles and live together in submission to God's revealed will for his people, the Bible. Not only the historical aspect of the church that Paul draws out, but in the one minute I have, the holiness aspect. Very simply, look at verse 22. What is the design of God in both saving a people and binding them with one another and committing them to submit to the teaching of the apostles? What is the design of God in this? It is that the church would be a light shining bright in the world as they are built into a holy temple, verse 21, in the Lord. A holy temple. It is the desire of God that his people, saved by grace, joined together in covenant fellowship within one another, that they would accurately reflect the God that they worship and serve, that they would accurately display his redeeming power through the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark Dever once said, distinct lives point to a distinct God. But friends, you understand unholy lives, chaotic lives, sinful, disobedient lives do not accurately reflect the beauty and the order and holiness and majesty of God. They just do not. Which means when we live lives out of step with Scripture, 
when we live lives out of step with what the apostles said, when we live lives not characterized by distinction and holiness and obedience to God's revealed word, we are misrepresenting God and the gospel to the world. Mark, uh, John MacArthur once said in a sermon that I was listening to just a couple of months ago, the greatest detraction to the effectiveness of God's church is the unholy lives of the people in the pews. There is a reality that is salvation that through the work of Christ we are being built into a holy temple, the dwelling place of God. We better look like it. We better live like it. And God's given us His Word in all of its fullness that we would know Him and that we would display His majesty and wisdom and glory to the world. Let us be effective in that. This is true for individual Christians. But how much more does it ring true for the corporate body that gathers together in his name, his bride, his chosen people that he has possessed for himself? Ephesians chapter 3 says that it is through the church when the church looks like this, when the saved people of God gather around the gospel of Christ and love each other in this way and consider one another as better than themselves and stand as a holy temple for God's dwelling, a light for the gospel to the world. It's then, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, that the wisdom of God is manifest to rulers and principalities and authorities and to our neighbors. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for binding us together in Christ and with one another in the church. I pray simply tonight that you would help us to love the church more than we did yesterday. God, help us to love the church more tomorrow than we do tonight. God, may we understand the centrality of salvation to, to, to this body, that we are here because of what you've done. And God, may that truth then bind us together in unity and harmony as we display the redeeming power of God to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.